So now we're live. Awesome. With Allie Lipscher. Hello. Director of goalkeeping with Go for Soccer. Um, strategist with yep. Visible City. Yep. So this is the one time equal time soccer followers will not overlap this way, but all of my personal followers Perfect. will be very excited to combine to women's soccer right and urban planning. Yep. It's the only Twitter account in the world that applies yeah, both yeah. of those things, yours and mine. And um, we are going to talk first about your work with the Gophers. We, for a while, the Gophers had a very lean uh, goalkeeping roster. Okay. Like it was like yep. two, it was always just like two, very simple, yep. no dynamics. You finally now, I think, get some fun dynamics coming into the fall. We, yeah, oh my gosh. Where yeah. Maddie, so Maddie Nielsen, mm -hmm. you know, won the job last year and ended up starting mm -hmm. this, the whole season, but now we'll have three keepers, right? Four? Four keepers. Oh yeah, four. So we have, yeah. so Tracy, right? So we've got, Her. we've got Maddie. Maddie. We've got Anna, who was a freshman this year, going to be a sophomore next year. Uh, and then we've got Megan and yeah. Brittany. Brittany, yeah. Coming in. Yeah. So we're going to have four. It's going to be interesting. <laughs> that's a lot. It's a lot. It's a, that's a, that's a, it's a lot of kids in the kiddie pool. Well, and we, I got to see you coaching during uh, a gopher soccer camp or a Minnesota soccer camp. And it was really fun to see all the keepers on one end and to see kind of what what they could pick up on quicker and then mm -hmm. I got to see you do a demo which was yeah. very satisfying for me now I feel like <laughs> I could go out and be a like a c-rate keeper yeah, just after that demo but talk about the going from you know playing into coaching especially with the keepers where I think probably most people who follow soccer know about that position least just because there's only one on the field right, I right. mean like how do they you know they they know when someone blows a save, but they right. don't really know what led to that, like positioning. Right. But what's it like coaching, especially young keepers? I mean, you came in and there was a sophomore and a freshman. And now there's going to be two more freshmen. Yeah, yeah. But so, really, all of them pretty raw in terms of experience. I mean, mm -hmm. talk about that of coaching them up to to go out and play in the Big Ten. Yeah, that that is definitely a challenge, and it was a challenge last year too with two two younger keepers because. I mean, experience you can't coach, right? Experience mm -hmm. just, just happens, and it comes with mistakes, and it comes with, um, you know, so all of these sort of inevitable um, aspects of, of learning the game in that way. Uh, and I guess that my approach to it was if I could just get them prepared with everything else, because I'm not going to be able to teach them the experience part, but if we can get them, you know, like technically um, mm -hmm. as solid as we can get them, if we can get them super confident, mm -hmm. um, if we can develop all of, all of these aspects, then, you know, and maybe we can sort of like, uh, hide all of, all of the inexperience that we have and you know to a certain extent um, I, I, I could argue I guess that it worked mm -hmm. um, you know Maddie grew throughout the course of the season she had um, some some games where her inexperience really showed and then by the end she was hitting a really good uh, really good stride and and you know, really helped us win the Big Ten tournament on a mm -hmm. shootout, which is which is about as good as it gets. For <laughs> it's like the dream. It's like that's the if there's a shooting a last second shot in the driveway version mm -hmm. of soccer. Right. That's like right. you can't get more than winning the conference tournament we, on a we, PK As a save. position, like you're saying, we we get recognized for letting goals in. We never have the opportunity to win a game. Unless <laughs> it's the only it's a time. That's it. Yeah. So that that was a huge highlight. Um, but again, like, like you were saying, we're going back to having a really young squad. We're getting two freshmen next year, yeah. so our average age is going right back down. <laughs> um, and we're going to have to deal with, you know, a lot of, again, the inexperience and, and, and managing, managing four keepers. Well, and I think for people to try and, for me to try and describe as someone who watched the whole team but didn't necessarily focus exclusively on the keepers, if I had to do it in kind of a sentence, it seems like Maddie is fairly solid kind mm -hmm. of across the board, mm -hmm. isn't necessarily known for one single aspect other than her her really um, uh, 
you know, her size, that mm -hmm. she's so tall, yep. she has a lot of length, um, and it's noticeable. I mean, standing next to anyone else on the team, she's sort of like yeah. head and shoulders above them. But Anna, I feel like when you talk to the coaching staff and talk to other players, she really, like, shot-stopping and the, the active saving, mm -hmm. like, the physical ability to make saves seems yeah. like what people speak about the most. But mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you talk about those two? Because, I mean, part of the spring season that you're in now is like people are battling it out and they're trying to work their way into a role but there's um there's so many things asked of the keepers in the gopher system i mean there's so much playing out of the back and so there's passing distribution but also those saves i mean how do you talk about those two and kind of what their what their strengths are and what they bring to the table yeah and they are really unique in that way um and it's been interesting because they sort of balance each other out a little bit where you're right anna is a super energetic um, keeper, she's 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 a really good trading player because she loves those shot shot stopping mm -hmm. aspects of the game. Um, and Maddie, some of her strengths are a little bit more nuanced, where little things you might not notice, like her positioning is really good. Right. You know, she's tall. She, in, in some ways, she does uh, suffer from that that tall person. Um, <laughs> it's like you know, it's false where it's it takes her a little bit longer to get to the ground, and she right. does she does a good job of it. You know, for her for her height, she is good and quick with getting to the ground. Mm -hmm. um, but things that you might not notice, where her positioning and ability to make up for that is great. And mm -hmm. some of the things that I think ultimately won her. Uh, the starting spot. Mm -hmm. uh, the spring has been great because it's been an absolute battle uh, between them where Anna has you know worked super super hard um, and is really putting in um, the effort to, to fill in some of the gaps that mm -hmm. that she had um, and I think you know to go back to your question in, t in terms of uh, how do you decide you know who who gets that role the way the way that I explain it to them is I don't make that decision right. they make that decision Right. I'm, I'm going to give you a canvas and you paint me a picture and we're going to see who's got a more complete, you know, more mm -hmm. complete drawing. Um, and, and especially with like going back to it again, now you, you've got it on my mind and it's like making me anxious going, going back to four next year. That's going to be, you know, an even different, <laughs> an even uh, more complicated conversation. Well, and how, I mean, it's it's so funny for like the, those of us who haven't played keeper before thinking about four mm -hmm. keepers, even in training is sort of interesting, like the idea that these players are coming in and battling it out, but they're really, you know, a lot of the work that you do with them is kind of separate. So they're kind of with each other a lot of that time. And there's one person who gets that starting right. job and right. it's four of them. Right. It must be a really kind of interesting dynamic. I mean, you've yeah. played the position before. Have you been in a situation like that where there's four keepers and you're like fighting for that spot? I have, you know what, I have. And it was, it was actually um, my freshman year of college, I came in uh, and there was four keepers on the team. And I ended up starting as a freshman, so it created a really interesting dynamic for me, where I was like, um, interesting in the Minnesota sense. Uh, you know what? You know what? No, it was. It was, and that, and what it taught me, honestly, there was such a good core, there was such a good like repertoire among the four keepers, where even as a freshman who was starting, I felt like empowered by mm -hmm. the other keepers that were there. Like I, I didn't oh, feel great. you know judged. I didn't feel put down. No one was mad. Everyone just wanted the team to win, so everyone mm -hmm. got on board with that. And that's a really good example, especially now coming in because. As a coach, you've got to you've got to give these kids a situation where they can both compete as competitors, but mm -hmm. also compete as teammates. Right. Um, and so, I think I had a really good example of that um, when, during my career, mm -hmm. uh, and that's something that I've tried to bring to the table. And next year, you know, we'll absolutely have to bring. I'm going to have to create an environment where these kids can, you know, work and battle and compete and get into each other. Right. And then at the end of the day, like lift up the person who who's going to be in between right. the pipes. Yeah, and I think it's it's probably 
I mean, it's tough as there because I think making a change at that position is such a strong signal, yes. like in season. Mm-hmm. So it's like that camp battle is such a big deal because it's right. sort of like if someone earns the role and then does well in non-conference, right. it sort of like takes massive amounts of like muscles yeah. to make that change. Yeah. Well, and you, so you you mentioned your playing career. You came out at a time when, um, I, I guess women's soccer in the in the states, but in the world, has always been a little bit of a wild west. But you, mm-hmm. I think your era was like yeah. almost peak wild west, where yeah. there were new opportunities coming in, but then clubs were folding. Right. And so right. those like all of the different layers. So you're again, according to Wikipedia, internet, and we yeah the internet, Coco Express or <laughs> right. Coco Expos. Coco Expos. Yeah. To, in 2007, so right after yeah, I school, that, that would be I, your graduation year? Yep, that was... Um, or would it be the summer before? It would be... Uh, so technically I graduated in 08, so okay. it would have been, I guess, maybe a, a spring tournament that uh-huh. I guess played with them. Yep, so they you did play for them, according to the internet. <laughs> the so internet, that's a I yes. Did, yeah. That's a yes. And then 08, Ajax America. Yeah, so the league hadn't actually... The WPS, which was the league that I played in, hadn't actually started yet. So I had kind of like a year in between when I graduated... Uh, and there was like, you know, rumors of this league coming up and yeah. everyone was talking about comp match. But like right. you're saying, it was. It and really you were was. like a four-year starter. So you were like, yeah, I want to go I was like, this. I want to play. Yeah, like, let's <laughs> let's do this. So, so I don't know, like every starving artist, I moved to LA. I don't know. <laughs> I, I had I had a former teammate that was living out there that was playing for a great club, Ajax America. Um, I went out. I was a semi-pro team. Um, you know, had had they had a great setup where they were able to set me up with a host family. Mm-hmm. We played in the um, WPSL. Yeah, it was a great league. California, obviously, there's, there's a ton of great players in competition. Mm-hmm. I was playing with, uh, you know, I was playing. I had like been able to train with like Karen Barsley and other people that had come through mm-hmm. this pretty well-known club. Um, and we did really well. I think I think we won the national championship that year. So it was, it was a great yeah. It was there a great like, year after college. Moved to LA, play a bunch of soccer. I was still surfing a whole bunch, which is awesome. <laughs> Uh, it was that was a fun time. Ajax is a great club. Right. Well, still surfing a bunch. So now we have to take a tangent, okay. of course, because you're from because you're from Hawaii. I am from Hawaii, which is um, a defining factor of of you, Different, obviously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is from your Boston days, <laughs> Boston Breakers, another mm-hmm. team you played for, but now has has folded. Yep. They did an entire grilling of you about Hawaii. They did. So we like. Have you been to the Hukalai Hukalau? Cafe yep, from the yeah. from the movie Fifty First Dates. I will not ask you about the movie <laughs> Fifty First Dates, but talk a little bit about um, like growing up in Hawaii and then going to school in Duke. I mean, I'm assuming you landed there because it's such a top program, mm-hmm. and so you were probably a top player who made it there. But yeah, I mean, talk about playing soccer in a location like that where, I mean, at least I, the top top you know, elite players in the Midwest do a decent amount of travel to like Michigan and Kansas and Missouri and, you know, other, other tournaments. Talk about being on like an Island far away. I mean, when you were going through that, what was that, what was that like going and playing in, in a place that's a little bit more remote? It's, you know, it's funny being on the coaching end of it now, because looking back on what that experience was like for me, I was so naive. I mean, it. The soccer was good. We had a great we had a great um, director at our club, so the level of soccer was great. Um, and being in Hawaii, there wasn't you know there were there were good teams. There wasn't a ton of competition. We're not Cal South. We're not having to go through fifteen top tier teams to mm-hmm. get to regionals. So we got to go to regionals every year. Right. We got to go to Surf Cup every year. Um, so I think there was Surf Cup, which is amazing. Surf Cup, yeah, it was super fun. I mean, we we like amazing. went to San Diego every year, which was great. Um, and and so because of that, there was a little bit more exposure, mm-hmm. right? Um, and 
and at the, at the same level, like I had no idea like what kids in the Midwest, I didn't know that they were traveling, you know, right. here and there and everywhere. We just kind of, again, we went to regionals every summer and we went to surf cup every summer. Right. And I got really lucky. Um, ODP was still a big, a big part of development when I was coming up. Right. I think it's less so mm-hmm. now just because of the club system. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got seen, you know, at ODP and again, being the goalkeeper from Hawaii, there's like, <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of sort of like defining uh, elements to Just that. Just like sticks right out. Yeah. So so I got, you know, I had really big ears and I was tall and lanky. So it was a lot of, again, <laughs> defining factors for me. That made it pretty easy to be noticed. Um, but it was, it was a really kind of traditional, I guess, at that time recruiting process where I got seen by a bunch of schools and I took all my official visits and my, my dad didn't come with me. Like I just kind of went to check out the school. I hadn't committed. I don't think I committed until I was like... Uh, October of my senior year, which is nuts now. I, like right, that, right. which which is probably normal would seem normal for people who just went to college. Mm-hmm. But for people who don't follow recruiting now, and maybe you don't have to dip too far into that for the Gophers, right. but like recruiting now is bonkers. Like you start talking to players in eighth grade, yeah. ninth grade. Yeah, and players some, start talking to us in right, like seventh and eighth grade. Right, and like we're kind of like whoa, whoa, whoa. And like top players are committing in like ninth, and then even yeah. like. 10th is sometimes seen as almost like late or yeah. an average time to be committing. So yeah. like 16 year old, 15 year old kids. It's bananas to think about, but it is, it is kind of the reality. Yeah. yeah. Well, and so you, you committed in the fall of your senior year. This is great. Rue's trying to get some She's, camera time. She is. That's great. She's sweet. Her time. <laughs> sweet so then, um, <laughs> <laughs> she's gonna start whispering the answers. That's great. She's good. Yeah. She's going to give you some advice. So then you, so, Boston, you mm-hmm. did, you were there for one, it's oh, oh 09 to 10, so that was one year. Two though. seasons. Two I, seasons? Yeah, I was there for two seasons. Okay, yeah. so that was in the WPS? That was the WPS, Okay, yep. the mm-hmm. predecessor to NWSL yep. for folks who weren't there. So you had some appearances there. What was it like playing in Boston? Like, who were some, you know, what was it, was, it like being, because that league is now defunct, but it really did have a run. It did, yeah. Yeah, it was great. I mean, it was really, the league itself was really well run. Um, I landed in a great spot. I mean, Tony DeChico was the head coach. Talk mm-hmm. about, you know, a legend there. Um, Lisa Cole has coached with Tony forever. She was my goalkeeper coach for one of the years. Uh, Katie Shields is now a coach, um, you know, in the college game. She was my goalkeeper coach for a year. Um, and then you have we had players on the team that were just like we had Christy Lilly on the team, like absolute legend, right? There's there is I think I would argue that there's no better example of someone. I mean, in terms of leadership, in terms of fitness, in terms mm-hmm. of game awareness, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's no one who almost is more legendary there was no one that was more legendary in that league there were a few people though as, as legendary right. as her in that league so it, right. was, it was incredible I mean I was honestly starstruck for the first few training sessions that I think I finally got over it and needed, realized I needed to win myself a spot before I asked her for an autograph <laughs> like focus or something up like yeah that. like yeah, focus exactly. up a little bit um, but it was really cool I mean I was young I was just out of college you, we had kids um, that were in the same situation as me and then we had you know people that were on the national team right. that had that had, had this kind of um that had that experience of like playing at a professional level and mm-hmm. in an environment. So we had a lot of great examples. Um, and Boston was, I mean, it's a really fun city. It was a really fun place to be after college. Um, I ended up living with a couple of other players in what we just called the frat house. Cause it was just like the cheapest house we could find that had like seven bedrooms and we shoved as many people as we could in it. And it was, it was just, it was a cool experience. Well, and even back then, I mean like housing and pay and all of that stuff is still obviously like mm-hmm. a very real thing yeah, now, even yeah. after improvements were made. But like back then, do you remember what you guys were making? Like were they helping you with housing and they, then you're getting you know paid what? a little bit? Yeah. Like, what was it like? Yeah. I mean, there was, there was a minimum salary the first, um, the first year. Um, I don't remember what it was. I think it was, it was like 
decent. Like they went in and they were like, let's make this like livable. Let's make this. Right. Um, and then honestly, I think they realized after the first year, like, shoot, we might not it's be able to. Much. Yeah. Right. And it's hard, right? Because you, because you need those wages to like, to like right. sustain a player, but you also need yeah. a business model that can sustain a league. So there's definitely a struggle there. Right. Um, and that's hard to see when you're on like the receiving end of the paycheck. But you know, when, <laughs> when you're on like the organizational side, I'm sure like, yeah. those, you just like, it's a numbers game at that point. Um, but they did provide housing. We lived with host families. My second year there, I lived with a host family, mm -hmm. which is an amazing experience because these are families that have kids that play soccer or that are just really into it or season ticket holders. Yeah. So it creates a community. Um, it gives you a family away from home. You know, it gives you like a home cooked meal and people to talk to that aren't your teammates. And mm -hmm. it's, it's a really, really cool experience. Well, and cause it's the, those seasons. I mean, I think people probably don't fully realize, you know, it's, with leagues like that where it's only a certain size, so you're only mm -hmm. playing a certain amount of games, it's almost like a half a year, right? Yep. Like it's exactly. so you're you're kind of there for part of the year, mm -hmm. and then some, you know, somewhere else. So it's kind of like a weird situation, no matter what. Right. So living with that family has like some yeah. stable elements. It, yeah, help. it does provide stability. And yeah, like you were saying, I mean, then then the season's over, and the other half of the year, like I, I figured out eventually that there were other other leagues abroad that you know right. allowed me to play for the other half of the year, but. Right. I mean, the first I was just I think I moved back to North Carolina in between the first season, and I was like, well, I'll get a job at a bar because I know how to bartend, and I'll train with Duke when I can and get there. Right. And you kind of like you sort of try to piece together some semblance of a training regimen. It's right. hard, it, or it was hard. Um, and then yeah, I figured out that I should just go play for another team and then make it a lot easier. Right. Well, and you eventually have Newcastle Jets. I don't know mm -hmm. if that's is that affiliated with Newcastle. Or is Newcastle, that, Australia. Newcastle, Australia. So yeah. that's in Australia and then Sydney. Yeah. So what were those experiences like? That was awesome. I mean, I'm, like, like I said, I figured out that um, the W League in Australia, it was pretty much perfectly symmetrical with yeah. the league here. So yeah, a lot of here. Americans go down there and play, mm -hmm. or at least a decent amount of Americans go play there now in yeah. the, kind of the winter season. Yeah, yeah super now. popular now. I think there was only a couple of Americans um, that were down there when I was playing. But I got hooked up with the Newcastle Jets. It's about three hours north of Sydney. Um, so kind of rural, kind of... Yeah, it was okay. kind of a beach town, which was fun. <laughs> um, really, really good season. I went down with Nikki Cross, who was... She played for UConn, and she was also playing for the Breakers mm -hmm. at that time. Um, and it's just a really cool experience. It's so cool to live abroad, experience mm -hmm. somewhere else. I mean... Um, hard to beat Australia. Yeah, and honestly, I when I was playing, I didn't get to go back to Hawaii to see my family that often, mm -hmm. but... Like Hawaii's really like the closest place you can go yeah. to fly to Australia. So I would like pop home and like see my family for a day <laughs> and then, you know, and then kind of keep going. So it was, it was fun. That was about, about a three year period where I was able to like play in the WPS and then go to Australia and just switch those seasons back yeah. and forth. That's great. Well, and it's still, I think that league is still probably one of the most kind of consistent yeah. presences. And there's a lot of Australians who come and play here. A lot of people yeah. who play there and here. It's just the, the dual schedule. And actually that's kind of a stress point. For the league mm -hmm. because neither league can kind of stretch their schedule right. too much right. because they have to yeah but there like, is so much back and forth it's kind of like an un, it's like a handshake like right. mm, we don't want to screw this league up because we have players going back and forth yeah but i mean their league is growing tremendously now the level yeah. of the the australian game overall you look at you look at their national <clears> team they're, <throat> they've done super well the last few years they're <clears> sending <throat> players here yeah we're fighting i'm sure it's hard to find spots for americans to go yeah. over and play there now because their levels way way up right Right. Well, and you, so you're, we do have, of course, this is so much Duke focus, which is more than I would prefer, but you're a Dukey, Steph Galan, the head yeah. coach, the Dukey. So we did get some good questions. We'll start with one that we will not have you answer, but because Steph sent it to us, the five unofficial graduation requirements of Duke. 
Um, we're not going to get into it because this is a family-friendly podcast. Yeah. But people can know that um, you can look it up yourself. But Steph, how dare you? Steph, yeah, Steph threw that out there to try to throw me off my game. Right. It's to on the internet. Curveball. Right. Yeah. It exists. Some of them are innocent. Yeah. Tunneling. Tunneling. There are tunnels. Yeah, there's a tunnel that runs from East Campus to West Campus, which yeah. is about a mile away that you can... And you, you have done that. I've tried. Tried. Yeah. Got partway into the, yeah. the process. <laughs> One of them is absurdly innocent. It's mm-hmm. driving the wrong way yeah. on the loop through campus. Yeah. There's a big kind of That's circle. That's almost adorable. It's, yeah. It's cute. There's a big circle where you can see, like, it's a very iconic view of, of yeah. the campus with the, with the yeah. T-Chapel in the background. There's a circle that, like, the buses go around. If mm-hmm. you drive around three times, then I guess you're allowed to graduate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Once you do it. Once then you do you're it, allowed yeah. to get right. your diploma at this very prestigious university. And then, so... Duke known for much more than soccer excellence. Mm-hmm. Did you ever take part in burning of the benches, which seems like kind of a maybe maybe for college students it's within the realm of acceptable behavior. Yeah, seem it would seem a little bit criminal in a broader instance, but maybe an on campus, maybe an on campus activity. It's yeah, less I'm, less risky. But talk about burning of the benches. It, yeah, it's a real thing, and you're right. Now that you mention it in the criminal aspect, it does seem to fit well. <laughs> But, you know, like but that was years ago. Yeah, You'll never be charged so long ago. Now. Yeah, no, there's got to be a statute of limitations. Yeah. So, yeah, so the, the basketball team won, um, won NCAAs uh, my freshman year. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing is that you have a big bonfire, mm-hmm. uh, and they have those giant sort of campus benches yeah. that must weigh a billion pounds each. And right. you give people, I don't know, enough natty light, and they have the yeah. ability to pick it up. So even at Duke, nat- natty light would be... I would think it'd be <laughs> it like a... variety. I'd feel like it'd be a step above that. Like like I went to a, I went to a small like state school yeah. in Western Minnesota. I feel like their scrappy beer was encouraged or expected. At Duke, I would assume it would be like you guys are drinking Heinekens and like Stella Artois. No, no, no we had Natty Light, we had Milwaukee's. Past. The Research Triangle doesn't have like maybe it does now. Beer. I don't know. Maybe yeah, maybe it was just more grassroots back then. Right. I'm not sure. Right. That's well. But yeah, so so they have all these benches that they, you know, that people realize are flammable and they make a big a big bonfire right in the middle of the quad. So it's sure. I mean, it's it's giant. It really is a giant fire, but I had actually just I had just had knee surgery. So I was on crutches yeah. when they won. Yeah. Um so for the most part, it's it's a little bit debaucherous. It's a really cool sight. It's a giant celebration. Everyone's right. having a great time. Uh, but I was actually kind of like crutching around this bonfire, yeah. like trying to celebrate with everyone. I think I realized pretty early that it was going to be a, a bad long-term decision, so I just went home. Right. You just get to see it. You experience it, and then yeah. you Yeah. I mean, it's a big enough fire. You can probably see it from anywhere on campus. Right. So. Right. And these, so these other points are not related to Duke. Your red bike is a topic of interest oh my gosh, with the rest yeah. of the Gophers staff. I did get Talk a hard about time about the, that. Talk about the color choice that went into this purchase. So I ride my bike to campus almost every day because I hate parking, honestly. Yep. I've got enough parking tickets where yep. the bike felt justified to buy. So I got I got like a, a not like a fat tire, but like a mid to fat tire yep. with like thick wheels. And it was like a great deal. And it happened to be the color red. So I sent the staff like this picture of this bike and I was like, woohoo, I don't have to park anymore. And the first right. response I get was, why is it red? <laughs> Why is it like we're gonna like? And then I started this whole conversation about my red bike. I think right. it, it it might be downstairs. Molly might have stolen it to paint it some other color. They did say they wanted to paint it. I don't know if they did the actual stealing yet though. If so, honestly, if they if 
if they do less than uh, I, I'm I'm totally open to painting the bike. I'm worried about the quality of the painting job. That's yeah, if happen. it's like a, a hardware store spray paint situation I, yeah, I and mean, tape, they're not gonna like take the wheels or the gears off. It's just gonna be all maroon, which maybe, everything I mean, on the bike. Yeah, yeah. chain gears, all everything. Of it. Right. So I'm, well, we'll I'm see. a little bit nervous. Luckily, like maroon and gold. Which would be cool, but luckily it's warm enough where I can just get my other bike we'll out, see. which isn't right. I think this is probably some suburban teasing happening. There's so. the coaching staff is fairly suburban. Yeah, yeah. So I think this is a little bit of anti-bike, <laughs> anti-urban environment. Yeah, they're probably just mad that, that they have to deal here. with parking every day. Right. Yeah, which it's I actually understand. jealousy. Yeah. Right. I can I can live with that. I mean, it drove me to buy a bike, so. Right. <laughs> right. And you, so you have a few other things tied to your personal athletics. Mm -hmm. Coach did mention long, long ass races that you do. My <laughs> words translated from her. Okay. How long are we talking here? The longest race I've ever done is 42 miles. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, I mean, That's after soccer, I was a goalkeeper, right? So I had like years and years of like not running to make up yes, for. Right. Um, and I kind of got into running as just like something you could do anywhere, especially mm -hmm. like when you're coaching and for a while I was recruiting, so you're on the road. Right. And it's just like something to do for exercise, right? Because you don't get to play as much as you want after you're, after you're done playing. Mm -hmm. um, and then it kind of just became a thing that stuck. And, mm -hmm. um, uh, I mean, I met my wife through running, so that that's kind of how we started. It already paid off then. Yeah, so exactly. Your, yeah, return on investment was high there. You already got your benefits. That's yeah. Um, and, and it's like I said, it's just something that was fun. And then I discovered trails, like trail mm. running, which is a whole different animal to road running. Road running, I mean, you still can do like the, this is how fast you have to run, and this is how far you have to run. When you're on the trails, all that kind of disappears, and it's mm -hmm. a really good a really good way to sort of lose yourself. I'm not one of those people that can lose myself in a 10 mile run. I will struggle through a 10 mile run on a treadmill or the roads. Right. But if I'm on the trails, like you, you can't worry about time, you can't worry about pace. Um, and eventually there, you know, it became a reason to go see cool places and, and do cool mm -hmm. things. So the, the longest race that we did was actually in Scotland. It was a 42 mile race in Scotland, right? So That's like, amazing. Yeah, we're like, let's let's think of a cool reason to like go somewhere we wouldn't go otherwise. We, yeah. like, we like scotch, so there's a 40, <laughs> oh, by the way, there's a 42 mile race there. So if you go and you run 42 miles, you're justified in doing whatever else you want to do. Yeah, then it's you have like weeks and weeks of free scotch pass. drinking. Yeah, yeah just all great. of it, right? Some of us do that type of scotch drinking without the 42 mile race, <laughs> so you should give it be given credit I will, I'll for doing it the good yeah, way, yeah. right? And Coach also mentioned you're an ambassador for Tapo Athletic. Yep. Mm -hmm. What's that? Tapo Athletic is a cool, um, I mean, it's a running shoe. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a, it's an athletic brand. Uh, they make great shoes. They're based out of Boston. Tony Post was um, part of the team that did like the Vibram Five Finger shoes. Mm -hmm. Realized like that wasn't quite, you know, <clears throat> the type of shoe he wanted to make. There was a little bit more, a different kind of science he wanted to put into it. And now he just makes makes running shoes and they're super accessible. They kind of bring in the elements of like the minimalism with like a low mm. drop height mm -hmm. um, and all those things. And they're really into just using shoes to go adventure and explore. Um, nice. So honestly, I think it's a cool brand. They they give me a good deal on shoes and I have an excuse to go adventure and explore and take pictures of my shoes. Next time you need shoes, check out Tapa. That's yeah. great. Well, and you have, you have some cool um, stuff outside of... Uh, the gopher side that you do so you also do I mentioned it was kind of fun seeing you coach at the at the camp so you also do that individual coaching mm -hmm. um, through first line football mm -hmm. talk about the about what that individual coaching like who who pursues that like who goes for that because as a as a guy who played really low level club like rural soccer we barely had coaches who had played soccer before. So the idea that we would have like individual position coaches seems like such a luxury, like such a 
you wouldn't even know how to dream about having that type of thing for you. But talk about, especially for keepers, because, um, you know, all these all these kids probably have, even if they had someone who played, it was mm-hmm. someone who was a midfielder or a defender, like, yeah. how are they going to teach these kids how to dive well? Right, I mean, right. so talk about the kind of the need for it and who you work with through that. Yeah, so First Line Football is a company I started um, specifically to meet kind of the needs of goalkeepers in the area. Um, and, and the cool thing about goalkeepers is you're right. It is, I think a little bit of an underserved position Mm -hmm. at the moment. There's a lot of great clubs in the area and they have goalkeeper trainers. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you may be getting training through your club and this is, these are kids that are 10 that are just trying it out. Mm -hmm. These are kids that are in high school that have recognized that they want to play keeper, um, and pursue the next, you know, the next level. Or these are kids that are in college and they, and they want to take it further. Mm -hmm. Um, and they want to make sure that they have all the skills that they need. So, I mean, what, I think what I'm able to bring to that um, is to be able to, to really recognize where a keeper is, where they're at, meet them where they're at, um, and, and figure out what their goals are and try to fill that gap between where, where, where they are and where they want to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, I recognize it as a little bit of an underserved position. A lot of keepers, even if they are getting training with their club, it may be with, you know, your age groups are 12 through 15 or mm-hmm. whatever, kind of whatever the age groups pan out to be. So you're in like a giant group of keepers and maybe you're not getting the individual attention you need. Right. And because it is such a specific position, um, that attention is important. Mm-hmm. You know, getting, getting touches on the ball is important. And in, in the same vein, like being a good soccer player is important for keepers too. So time mm-hmm. with their team, like being playing on the field with their team is also super important mm-hmm. and, and giving them the keeper training kind of in a separate environment. So that it doesn't take away from that team time. Yeah. So you develop as an entire player. I mean, the reason it's called first line football, um, the reason I named it that is because goalkeepers aren't just the last line of defense anymore. They're mm-hmm. the first line of offense. You know, that's, that's right. a critical piece. Um, to developing yourself as a complete keeper. So that's that's something that I take into training. Mm-hmm. And you're asking who it is. It's it's kids of all ages, like I said. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, like, it, it really is just about helping keepers reach the next level. And, and the bigger goal is to develop a, a hub of goalkeeping in, in the Twin Cities, in mm-hmm. this region. You know, really just build that. I, w- I would love to be part of what makes... Um, or, or a place that just produces really high quality goalkeepers. Right. Well, and I think Minnesota is known for having um, a decent amount of talent mm-hmm. overall. I mean, I think we, you know, on the women's side, produce a lot of Division One, Division Two, mm-hmm. Division Three, kind of across the board talent. And the fact that the U is the only Division One school kind of tends to spray our kids a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, like they tend to head to other states. Yeah. But I think. It is interesting to think about goalkeeping because I think the U.S. is seen as kind of producing top keepers kind of both on the men's and women's side. Mm-hmm. But it's also such a tough, like I use, I think of it as being like almost more mental and more internal than other positions because mm-hmm. you're kind of back by yourself and you could feel yeah. isolated. Mm-hmm. So I almost, when I was seeing you kind of give your intro to those kids at that camp, I almost wondered, I'm like, wow, they might, like they should really trust you. You know, someone who's played high level college, but then some pro and then some you know, like national team level stuff. Mm-hmm. It's almost like when it's so much in your own head, the person delivering the message has to be really credible because it's so personal to you. Like as a keeper, you're yeah. like... Yeah, we were, talking, <laughs> we were talking about podcasts earlier and the tangent. There's actually a really good podcast. I think it's a Radiolab short. It's called The Loneliness of the Goalkeeper. Yeah. And, it goes in, and it goes into all that, like what it takes. And I think especially like when you're, you know, when you're an 11 year old kid and you like goalkeeping and you like the shot stopping and all that, but then you all of a sudden you have to deal with the fact that you're like standing in the goal for an entire game and you don't know how to focus for, you know, the 89 minutes that you don't have the ball or whatever. <laughs> it's probably yeah. shorter when you're 11. <laughs> um, but, but having someone to, 
like to talk to you about that or at least mention it and be like, hey, like it's hard. Like you got to try to stay focused for this long and then make sure you're ready when the ball comes. Um, so even just having those conversations, having someone there to have those conversations, like you're saying, mm -hmm. it is important. It's important to make it relatable because it can be a little bit of an isolated position if you let it. Mm -hmm. Well, and you, so your other kind of personal work is in a space that I really like. Mm -hmm. I don't know if all of our soccer <laughs> parents are interested in urban planning or not, but, but. get ready for content. <laughs> We'll tell Streets MN they can repost this. Yeah, that be, yeah. That would be how we'll use it. So you started working with Visible City, mm -hmm. which is a, a really cool local shop. They're based in St. Paul, and they do, um, just the other day I saw, you know, John Commerce present, and they, I think he has a really good lens on using data in different ways, because I think, you know, planning and development mm -hmm. can be done the same way over and over. But talk about how you even got into that, like how you got into that as a field. Into like, urban planning? Yeah, like was that, um, was that your degree, like the moment you were in, from the moment you were in mm -hmm. college, or is it something you got into, because um, you have a master's, right? Like yeah. was it something you got into later? How did you get into that field Yeah, it was something place? I got into later. Um, I, I knew that I wanted to get into planning in some respect and I thought for a while and, and I still am really into the idea of like sustainability mm -hmm. environmental sustainability mm -hmm. um, you know I come from Hawaii which has a really kind of um, almost fragile ecosystem in a way yeah. so, so to, like smart development has always been really important to me and the decision making around development has always been really interesting to me and I ended up um, just because of where we were living I ended up going to Trinity College in Hartford Connecticut to get my master's and the most sort of relevant way to approach planning, sustainability, mm -hmm. was through public policy. So I got my master's in public policy, um, which was great because that allowed me to see how decisions are made, mm -hmm. why they're made, why they're not made. Mm -hmm. um, and then from there, I started working in real estate consulting, which seems like a little bit of a tangent, but in mm -hmm. terms of like development, that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's really what everyone's working with is real estate now. Right. Whether you're reusing real estate or acquiring new real estate. Uh, and, and from there, I've been able to, I guess, really hone down um, what I'm interested in, which again is exactly what Visible City does. It's mm -hmm. the decision making. Um, I think that there is an untapped potential, especially in this day and age, to use data mm -hmm. to make really informed decisions. I think that, like you were saying, we're working in an environment where these decisions are sometimes um, made from boilerplate methods of, you know, applying. Um, yeah. Very traditional, very um, maybe systematic. Mm -hmm. ways of, of, of doing things and there is room to make smarter decisions and mm -hmm. when you do make when you do make one decision versus versus another things look different and I think that's that's really important and one of the coolest parts about moving to the Twin Cities for me was that you can see how some of the decision making here has used a mm -hmm. lot of data a lot of information a lot of different resources mm -hmm. to make decisions about urban spaces and and we have a lot of great things because of it i mean we have you know amazing bike infrastructure mm -hmm. because of it we've got really good green space mm -hmm. because of it it's, it's accessible you know um we talk about all the time how the the light rail here is it's a pretty small light rail system but it literally goes everywhere you need it to go mm -hmm. so you know it, is it perfect no nowhere is perfect mm -hmm. um but it's cool seeing um decisions being made using a much broader lens if mm -hmm. you will, and, and, and a much deeper kind of dive into the data that is available because we live we live in an age where mm -hmm. there's almost no shortage of it right like data is mm -hmm. almost a currency right so how you acquire it how you use it um how you measure the success of it that's mm -hmm. all those are all things that that visible city uh, and i are both really interested in applying to mm -hmm. this process well and it's i think it's so cool because there's so many 
there's so many assumptions built into like our public policy decisions and development and all those things that are just based on kind of decades of mm-hmm. experience. And so, but it's based on that experience built from like a certain lens. Mm-hmm. And so a city like St. Paul or even the Twin Cities mm-hmm. is so diverse, but a lot of those frameworks were built on, you know, one exact type of person. Mm-hmm. And so in a city like St. Paul, where I work outside of this, like I see that all the time mm-hmm. where people make assumptions based on what St. Paul is because yeah. it's like, it's like Catholic, Irish, like white people living in Highland Park. It's like one exact cluster of people Mm -hmm. and the community is so much more. But part of that is using data to prove to people that it is so much more, Mm -hmm. you know, like proving that new, like John, uh, who you work with talks about that in like downtown St. Paul Mm -hmm. of like people just assume like certain parts are the way they are. And like, if you can take data and and break people's assumptions, then it can change the way that maybe projects are built. And, in like a, in a positive, more proactive way. Totally. And data can seem like, you know, it can seem super sterile and non-personal, mm-hmm. but there, I mean, there's data like sociodemographic information mm-hmm. that really uh, tries to understand people and culture and mm-hmm. behavior. And, and when you take all of that data, it creates a really complete picture. So, you know, you're not just looking at, at numbers, numbers, mm-hmm. numbers, you're, you're trying to really better understand mm-hmm. a place and make decisions that are truly beneficial for it. Mm-hmm. Well, and on the Gopher team, I've long said that the players are too smart. They're in the hard sciences. They're going to be like doctors and engineers and pharmacists, etc. And so I don't think there's enough liberal arts style um, public policy hippies on the team. I've always (laughs) said that, of course. Right? That's accurate, yeah. Right. So your job now is to hunt out some of those players and figure out... Well, it's a huge incoming class. So you can hunt out some of these young players Mm -hmm. who are interested in nerdy Mm -hmm. policy stuff. And I've actually just can, been like secretly put into this position so yeah. I can like infiltrate the team. And then and they can come intern yeah. with you yeah. and then we can get them just like nerdier Twitter stuff, not just soccer Twitter exactly. stuff. Exactly. It'll yeah. be great. It's the entire reason why I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Both of us, of course. <laughs> That's the only reason I started this blog Perfect. was to get people to be planners. Yeah. yeah. Well, Allie, thank you so much. We had a great cameo from Rue. We did. She's now, she's been resting, snuggling back here. Yeah. Moose was too. I don't know if they can see, but yeah, <laughs> look at that. Well, thanks so much. This is great. Of course. Thank you.